Warm Regards, Conversations from the Frontlines of Climate Change. I'm Jacqueline Gill, Assistant Professor at the University of Maine. Joining me this week is our brand new co-host, Dr. Sarah Myrie. You may remember Sarah from a show we did last fall on the Me Too movement in climate science. Sarah, I'm really excited to have you join us as a regular, and I think our listeners would love to know, uh, especially those who didn't hear that episode with you, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> well, thank you for having me um, as one of the new co-hosts. It's really great. Um, so I'm a research associate at the University of Washington, where I um, study paleo, paleo climate science. Um, and I do a lot of other things besides just basic science. I'm a grassroots organizer um, with um, 500 women scientists. Um, yay. Um, I do a lot of work um, talking about um, how institutions um, can do better. So um, doing a lot of um, work integrating a framework of social justice and intersectional feminism into public life and public leadership. Um, let's see, I'm, a, I'm also a mom and I'm a cat mom. That's, oh, my, that's my jam. That's awesome. And um, so your line of research in terms of paleo is is very similar to what I do, but you tend to cover the oceans where I tend to stick more on land. Um, and you were just telling me about this new study that you were reading that is a little bit on the scary side. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, there was a study published um uh, called Constraining the Evolution of Neogene Ocean Carbonate Chemistry Using the Boron Isotope pH Proxy. So it's, um, it's a paleoceanographic study to constrain and understand the variability of the carbon system in the global ocean through time. And um, so one of the things that they found, which was really important to see, is that, um, and because, you know, of course, the past is the key to the future, right? We want to um, use the past Earth system variability to understand the kinds of changes that we um, predict and project in the future. So what this study showed uh, is that um, if we continue on emission trajectories um, by um, the year 2100, um, the pH in the global ocean um, will be... Essentially, we haven't seen um, pH levels in 14 million years um, that we will see in 100 years. So the, the, it just, I'm not explaining this very well. <laughs> no, no, you're doing great. Um, but it's, it really, sh what the study shows is that we are exiting these geochemical envelopes that are so fundamental for the way that life functions on the planet. And um, it shows us that there's all this work that we need to do to understand, well, what will happen to marine ecosystems from the, the, um, the um, calcifying um, microorganisms all the way up to the, the large organisms in the food chain um, from these um, very large chemical consequences of carbon emissions into the global atmosphere. So it was a scary study, and it showed um, that... Um, we we're we're moving into essentially unprecedented territory. And I think that's one of the things that's so powerful, and certainly what draws me to study the past is the fact that we can use these analogs um, to basically understand, you know, where we're going, where are we headed. We don't have to just be groping in a room, you know, with the lights off. We actually are able to to have some sense of, you know, what does the world look like when the ocean is this acidic? And um, one thing 
I think that's important to remember is, you know, sometimes people hear that, um, oh, you know, if this if this level of ocean acidification has happened in the past, and you know, life survived, then 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 everything should be fine. Well, I think it's important to remind everyone that a lot of the organisms that you know live in the oceans that we care about, you know, didn't necessarily exist, you know, 14 million years ago when conditions were were different than today, mm-hmm. and certainly a lot of the you know, the foods and the, and the, you know, the livelihoods that we draw from the oceans aren't necessarily, you know, they're not built around um, those kinds of ocean conditions. And it was actually, I think, our most recent episode where we talked to Mel Watkinson about, you know, the implications of ocean acidification. So I encourage you to listen to that episode if you want to understand a little bit more, but um, if, you know, if you're listening at home, but um, I, I, yeah, so I think the, the important, you know, rebuttal that I make is, is that, just because something has happened in the past doesn't mean that today's biodiversity or today's social systems or today's, you know, food systems are well situated to deal with those conditions. Absolutely. And you look at the, the, um, the level of detail and um, vigilance that authors go through in order to publish information like this. And it's astonishing. The work is really, really hard to do. And um, it shows you that, you know, these are not ideas that are, um, unvetted. You know, we understand Earth's history through very, very detailed and um, diagnostic work. Um, so, it, you know, this information comes from someplace. And I, I think we we live in a time when people, we forget that this has been, the, the planet has been, has an enormous amount of information captured in the proxies and the material from the past that actually has captured information that we can then use directly in understanding really important environmentally um, uh, relevant questions around fisheries, distribution of resources, um, how people will access those resources. So um, this is why science matters to um, to all of us. That is such a great point. And I'm so glad that I'm being joined by another paleo person so we can kind of nerd out about these um these, these past records and their lessons for the future more, I'm hoping. Um, and we will definitely post a link to that paper. And if we can find some good uh, popular press articles covering the results, uh, we'll try to post those on our show notes so that folks can, can check those out. So um, yeah, what's been going on with me lately? I joined a personal training gym a couple of months ago, and it's been this really positive experience And if you can afford it, I highly recommend it. Um, It's been really valuable just having a place that's mine, you know, where I get to punch things sometimes or lift heavy objects. And I can't describe how valuable that's been in these really stressful times. I mean, there's a lot going on in the world right now, and it can be really overwhelming. And every time I walk into the gym, it's like an instant mood booster. It's also been really helpful for me to feel like I can see progress, especially when, you know, lately I feel like I'm spinning my wheels at work or in other parts of my life. Um, some of you who follow me on Twitter may know that my mom passed away on Memorial Day. It was very unexpected. Um, and interestingly, this is right around the time when I started training. And I swear it's it's it helps to have this place where everything gets left at the door and it's all about the workout. And in the gym, I'm, I'm not even Jacqueline. Uh, they call me Jax. It's like Jacqueline is too short for motivational shouting. So it's like in the gym, I am a different person. It's like having a superhero identity. And 
of course, you know, what happens in the gym doesn't actually always stay in the gym. You start to see these changes in your everyday life, or at least I do. You know, I feel less pain. I feel more energy. And one thing I really love about my gym, and I promise this is going to tie in, um, <laughs> is that it takes this really holistic approach to your wellness. So I, you know, I get coached on having a healthier lifestyle overall. So, you know, I'll get these little encouraging messages about mindfulness or making sure I'm drinking enough water. And it might sound really cheesy, but when you habitually fail to take care of yourself, you actually come to appreciate stuff like this. Like someone reminding me and giving me permission to take care of myself is incredibly important. So today I got this survey from my gym, which included a lot of questions about uh, food and specifically whole foods. So how often do I eat them? What's the barrier to me eating them more often? You know, getting you to kind of think about things you want to do, and then what's keeping you from, from doing that better. And honestly, I actually really enjoy, enjoy meal planning. Um, I really like eating health, healthfully. And when I stop, it's usually because I'm really stressed out and tired and out of time. And so things like prepackaged foods or takeout are this convenience. And sometimes when you're weighing your various options, fast and easy, and maybe not great for you, is often better than slow and hard. And then, you know, the bag comes at the door and it's full of plastic cutlery and containers that I can't recycle. And I cringe because once again, I found myself making this choice. You know, I, I'm under duress. It felt good in the moment, but it's bad for my sodium intake. It's terrible for the planet. I am not this ass kicking superhero. I am a bad environmentalist and a bad person and I should feel bad. And if you're someone like me, who cares about the earth and has an oversized set of feels and can't find enough hours in the day, you will totally get what I'm about to say. It, it very often feels like we're always compromising and we can be amazingly good at beating ourselves up no matter what we choose. Do I choose time with my family? Do I get another paper out this semester? Do I go to the gym today or do I clean my house? So I'm really excited about today's guest because she grapples with these questions as a woman, as a feminist, and as a scholar. I first saw Dr. Jennifer Bernstein a little over a month ago when she presented on a panel titled, Can the Environmental Movement Take Feminism Seriously? So I live tweeted everything she said and immediately started tagging uh, my new co-host, Sarah. And so here we are today. Um, Jen is a lecturer with the Spatial Sciences Institute at the University of Southern California, where she researches in American environmentalism, Western environmental history, and addresses environmental problems and social justice issues through interdisciplinary frameworks. Jen, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. It's so great to be here. It's 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 really an honor, and uh, that was the first time I was I was live tweeted. So uh, <laughs> uh, thank thank you for uh, for for letting me see how that actually uh, actually works and looks. Well, I hope I was able to do your talk justice. Um, so I I originally wanted to kind of dive right in with some questions about uh, some of the work that you do, but um, I I think instead. I just want to ask you, because I think you have this really interesting story, how did you get started? You know, a lot of us tend to think of environmental science as involving things like counting trees or sampling lakes for pollution, but your approach is really different. You, you kind of come at environmentalism from a different angle. So if you could just tell us a little bit about, you know, what you do, but also more importantly, how did you get here? Uh, sure. I'd, I'd, I'd love to. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a geographer now and, 
a geographer is basically a way of saying someone who who can't stop from seeing the interconnections between all these different disciplines. So as geographers, we can look at places and we get to look at the ways in which all these different things intersect in one place. So basically, I'm a professional curious person and I I've I've always sort of resisted having to settle in a single discipline. So geography ended up really being the place for me as as time went on. But I started when I was maybe 14 and I became very motivated. I, I grew up in the Bay Area and I found out about the Headwaters Forest issue in Northern California where the last remaining unprotected stand of old growth redwood was being threatened by the Pacific Lumber Company. And it was sort of this, in some ways it was very traditional of a story. There was the big bad guy who was the, you know, the new CEO of the lumber company and he was trying to get out of this bail bond debt and and so he was liquidating the stock of this family-run company he'd taken over. And then on the other side were these activists and these incredible trees. And you know, so in some ways it was this sort of, you know, classic David and Goliath good versus evil story. And you know, when you're a teenager and everything's confusing, uh, it really made a lot of sense to me to be on the side of kind of what I saw was right. You know, there were some ways in which the story deviated from this traditional narrative. There were a lot of women in, in positions of power. Uh, the the organizers really advocated for the rights of timber workers. So it, it, it wasn't as sort of dyed in the wool as as you might think, or especially when compared to some of the other timber war issues in the Pacific Northwest. But I got very animated. I I skipped prom to go protest logging situations, and I was I was gung-ho. And, and oddly enough, at the same time, I was practicing a martial art called Aikido, and Aikido was all about, you know, how do you take two opposing viewpoints and find resolution for them uh, without, you know, basically the idea that, that the founder of Aikido, basically, he, he used to practice all these other martial arts. And he, I guess the, the story goes, he won this big fight, and his opponent was on the ground injured. And he realized that if someone else was injured like that, then he wasn't really winning. So on one hand, I had this sort of very traditional activist world that I was living in, where we were just fighting the bad guys. And then I had this other sort of philosophy that made a lot of sense, where you were sort of trying to look for a third path, where everybody could sort of get something they wanted. So so that kind of motivated me to study sustainable forest management and sustainable forest ecology. So I went up to the Evergreen State College and got my undergrad. Evergreen is one of those no grades, no major schools, but, you know, I, I got a bachelor's in science and, and did a lot of uh, forest field work. And I, after I, after I finished, I went and I was doing um, fish biology work in Alaska and, and doing some work with, with invasive species uh, in the Channel Islands. And I, I, I enjoyed it. You know, the lifestyle of a field biologist is pretty darn fun. I mean, weird too. You know, I remember, <laughs> I remember being out on Anacapa Island and spending the entire day looking for decomposing rats. You know, I think we all have these, <laughs> as field ecologists, <laughs> we all have these funny stories of, you know, and that was really, you know, there wasn't that thing in that. my head, right? <laughs> I know. There was that thing in my head that says, you know, if I, if I achieve my goal, it's going to be a decomposing rat. But we were trying to <laughs> test the levels of bri- Biofacum in their blood, but anyway, it was like a feels like a lifetime ago at this point. And I don't know if it was just you know too much time in the field thinking um, by myself, but uh, you know basically as as time went on, and this is not to denigrate field ecology, which is just an incredibly important space in which to sort of check you know what we think about these species uh, with you know what's actually happening on the ground, you know. But but I started wondering whether or not what I was doing was was the most 
effective way for me to sort of engage with environmental problem solving because I was, you know, listening to the radio and seeing that, you know, people's attitudes, their behaviors, the way that they voted was having a huge impact on on the natural environment. So I went on and I got a, um, a master's in geography and I looked at from University of California, Santa Barbara, and I was actually I was looking at how nature was depicted in print advertising and trying to see how different, you know, the desert is always something you're aggressive about and a forest is always peaceful. And um, I wanted to see how people responded to these ads. Um, so so I did that. And then I went on to I got a, a, a degree in science education because, again, I want to kind of work on the out, outward side of things and then ended up getting my Ph.D. from the University of Hawaii, where I looked at environmental typologies. Um, you know, I was uh, something kind of like, you know, when you guys were looking at your six Americas, uh, the Yale study, kind of like that. But I found I found four Americas, basically. So I don't know. They have more. They, they, have, a, they have a better research arm than apparently I did during my, my Ph.D. But, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in the way in which people care about the environment in very, very different ways. Uh, so so I still sort of have my roots in the biological sciences. And, and I think it's really important to have, you know, if we're going to be out there sort of talking about what nature is. Is, quote unquote, I, you know, there should probably also be quotes around nature too. Uh, you know, having that sense of, you know, say, uh, you know, I, I was just living in New York where there's lots of squirrels and deer and raccoons and everyone's saying, oh, look, you know, nature's coming back. And I'm saying, yeah, but there's trophic levels and some species occupy different roles than others. So I think having that sort of grounding in the biological sciences has been great for me to be able to sort of check my my social science work with this sort of sort of on the ground, uh, I don't want to say realism, but, you know, the sort of on the ground sense of what species are doing and how. That's so yeah, as someone who went to what I like to call the hippie college in the woods and then transferred to the hippie college by the sea, I totally, <laughs> and then I ended up in geography also, um, but then kind of I started more in the, I want to understand the relationship between people and nature and then kind of dove into, you know, the sciences from there. Um, I totally appreciate your, your perspective. And I think, I think that's just pretty fantastic. Um, so uh, that to, to kind of go to that panel idea, um, I learned at that panel that you had this essay published uh, in the breakthrough uh, titled, on Mother Earth and Earth Mothers, Why Environmentalism Has a Gender Problem, uh, which I just found, I read and loved and found really fascinating. Um, so tell us a, a bit about that. Like, what's what's the gender problem in a nutshell? In a nutshell, this is the elevator pitch, right? Uh, in a nutshell, I would say that what I sort of articulate in, in the essay is that environmentalism, especially lifestyle environmentalism, can be really blind to the ways in which its prescriptions disproportionately affect different groups of people. And for me, I looked at gender. And this is really rooted in unpaid labor. And so, I mean, I think, you know, one thing that's important, follow me here, uh, one thing that I think is important is, you know, first sort of understand what labor is. And I've made this joke before, but my joke is that when you're a PhD, you can kind of make make up words and definitions like you're allowed. Like I think that's on, you know, it's, it's like in this little clause that we that we get issued once we finish. But, um, you know, I, I my, my definition of labor that I teach my economic geography students is, you know, labor is something that if you didn't do it, you would have to pay someone else to do it. So in literally so. So, again, so, for instance, you know, if I don't want to fold my laundry, 
you know, either someone else has to volunteer for it or I need to pay someone else to do it. If I want to go for a hike on the weekend and then don't do it, well, you know, I don't have to hire someone to go hiking for me. So these are these jobs that, you know, should or not should necessarily, but could be monetized, but in many cases aren't. And if you look at the data around the world, there's literally no country in which levels of unpaid labor are even remotely comparable between the sexes. They're just, there's, there's just nowhere, you know, there's some places where maybe it's, you know, a hundred minutes a day in Denmark, there's about a hundred minutes a day in difference in terms of what men and women do with respect to unpaid labor. And these are things like, you know, transporting family members, volunteering, taking care of the elderly. A lot of this, the bulk of this is domestic labor. So household duties, things like cooking, cleaning, stuff like that. But there's literally nowhere where it's even remotely close between genders. And we can, and we definitely should discuss ways in which these things can be rectified. You know, that's that's kind of one of my, you know, bottom lines that I, I kind of wish I'd, I'd, I'd articulated better. But, you know, that's a big, big problem. But in the meantime, and, and, and I'm also not saying necessarily, you know, at all that that environmentalism has has caused any of these gender discrepancies or is anti-feminist in, in some sort of essential way. But I think that we can be pretty blind, and I say this again as a lifelong environmentalist, I think we can be pretty blind, especially because there's this narrative of like, oh, if we just got people to care more, everything would be okay. We just need to get people to care. And a lot of what I talk about in this piece is the way in which caring is not the barrier at all. And in many cases, what the barrier is, is responsibility for unpaid labor, especially domestic duties and especially household tasks. So I guess I sort of, an, an, another big point I make in the essay is, you know, this sort of terminology and this problematic tendency of certain types of ecofeminism to sort of conflate women with the environment. This is also something that's done with a lot of Native American groups where sort of the environment and women are sort of seen to be one and the same thing. And it's it's kind of this double-edged sword because in many of these conversations, I think it's really meant to, you know, empower women to speak on behalf of the environment. But on the other hand, if women do anything that's deviating from sort of all these pro-environmental activities, you know, the, the cloth diapers and the farmer's market shopping and the cooking the whole foods, Jacqueline, you know, if, if women deviate from this, then they're not just seen as being a bad environmentalist, but seen as sort of violating their own nature as a woman. So in the piece, I, I really sort of try to break up this idea that there's any sort of quote unquote natural way that women should be relating to the environment um, because of their, 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 you know, birth gender. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess I just sort of, you know, urge environmentalists more generally before they get into these sort of prescriptive concerns, you know, to, to, to think about the way in which different groups are going to be differently affected. You know, one thing that you talked about, Jacqueline, uh, in talking about, you know, the gym was that, you know, you, you have limited time and you have to make choices within that time. And that's, that's really a, a real concern. And I feel like that all the time. And I, I, I can choose between, you know, all these sort of post-materialist activities like, you know, cooking a meal from scratch and going to yoga. But a lot of people don't have that luxury. You know, it's not about choosing what you care for. It's, it's you know, you're, 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 
you, you don't know when your your you know how your work schedule is going to look one week. Uh, you know, kids are picky. Uh, there's budgetary constraints. You're taking public transportation versus driving, and it's it's not a matter of choosing yoga or cooking. It's it's you know you're, you're you, there's no reason why a CSA should be number one on a lot of more disenfranchised groups list. Like they got a lot of other things to deal with. So I guess I guess to me it was just sort of writing the piece was kind of a, a catharsis, just kind of saying like let's 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 look at how. Uh, different kind of people are living and whether or not the prescriptions we're giving them and the options we're giving them to care about the environment are something that's realistic within the constraints of, of the rest of their lives. Hmm. I, so I, I love your approach here. And I, um, one of the, one of the things I really was excited to talk to you about was this, um, these spaces around moralizing actions that um, are part of like a, our social constructs and the social currency that we assign uh, values to. Um, and your piece really hit upon um, some of these, th- th- these constructs around womanhood, around uh, what a good woman does and how, you know, how we raise our kids and how we are, our actions are, you know, our identities are like conflated with nature. You had this great quote, which is the, the conflation between women and nature has concrete implications for how women are positioned when within the environmental movement. And I, I'd love for you to speak about this idea about the conflation between women and nature and, and this, the sort of false moralizing um, and reframing that happens in that space. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, so I, I talked about it just a little bit, but you know, the the name of the piece included the idea of Mother Earth because I thought if there's any space in which women and the Earth are conflated, it's in that term. And of course, mm-hmm. I kind of went down the rabbit hole to try to figure out where did that term come from. And supposedly, it's rooted in a Navajo myth, which no one has really been able to verify. Which, of course, just I don't know. I have a sick sense of humor. <laughs> um, but, you know, Mother Earth is this sort of voluptuous, loving, caring creature, you know, who's always there to sort of clean up the mess. And every once in a while, when humans act out too much, she causes an earthquake. But, you know, just the fact that that terminology is so rooted in our in our culture, to me, just shows that there's this implicit kind of conflation between the two. And, you know, environmentalism, I think, is a really interesting social movement. And there's been a lot of writing on environmentalism and and religion. And many of those scholars just sort of start with the idea that environmentalism is a religion, and then they move on from there. But, you know, to back up just a little bit, you know, one of the things about environmentalism is that it's a movement that's very much embodied. So we really, as a group, try to rectify our lifestyle choices with our inner values. And so choosing between cloth and disposable, it's in part, you know, you go in there and you do all the reading and you realize that that cloth is just a little tiny, tiny bit better than disposable. But then you're like, well, what about this drought that I'm suffering through? The study was done before that. So it's a hard question. But when you're a new mom and you're like out on the playground and you're trying to find your people, if you see another cloth diapering mom, that's a way of signaling to that mom that you guys have maybe some set of values in common. 
And this is just how we operate, right? We all are sort of brands for ourselves, you know, based on sort of what we're wearing and what we're carrying. And, you know, obviously environmentalism is a little bit ironic because those tokens that we use to signal to our people are supposed to be kind of rejecting the very system that produced them, right? You know, it's sort of like, look, I'm yeah. an anti-capitalist or whatever, you know? So it's yeah. a little bit funny, but, um, you know, I, I think that we do embrace sort of all these activities as a way of, of representing a, a core value set. And, and, you know, in a world where so many of our connections are remote and yet, you know, as a new mom, what you really want is to just talk to a human being that sort of you understand and who understands you and who's at the same stage totally. in life. Like, it's a totally valid thing to do. So I guess I'm, I'm not trying to denigrate these lifestyle behaviors. And, and this is actually something I've been thinking about a lot lately because I'm, I'm working on a new piece. And, you know, on one hand, you know, I'll go and I'll write a lot about you know, how we know that these things like plastic straw bands are kind of goofy, but, you know, am I using straws? Well, no, you know, or, you know, we, we know that there's some problematic aspects with school gardens, but do I run the school garden at my kid's school? Of course I do. So, so it's easy to talk about rejecting these lifestyle behaviors. And, and I think a lot, a lot harder to do it when, when we actually get in there. So can I tell you a quick story about, so I, I have a four and a half year old, uh -huh. Um, and, um, when I, I had him, um, he was born in Sonoma County, California. And, um, so Sonoma County is like this super hippy dippy, um, eco aware, uh, grateful dead, uh, worshiping, um, marijuana smoking. Like it's just this, it's an enclave of a really specific culture in, in the United States. And, uh, and, and it's great for people, but, being a pregnant mom there was awful because like the, the culture in Sonoma County told me like, this is how you do pregnancy, right? Like you're, you're a sexy earth mama all the time. You, you birth your baby like in a pool on your deck with no assistance. And your midwife is like singing while you do it. And like when your baby's born, like you, you cut the, you know, umbilical cord with your teeth and you tie it perfectly, and then you, like, perfectly put your baby to your breast, and, of course, you have no problems breastfeeding because you're a natural woman, and then you tie the baby to your body, and you, like, go out into the, you know, your garden, and you pick greens from your organic garden, and you go in and, like, make yourself a quiche with your placenta. Like, that was, <laughs> what, motherhood. <laughs> oh, placenta quiche. <laughs> It's awful. And, and, and I remember like being, you know, and I was two weeks late for, for my kid to be born. And so I was just in this really hard space. And I remember going to my doctor and being like, I'm doing all the things like I'm having the sex and I'm eating the food and I'm having the acupuncture and I'm meditating and I can't relax enough to go into labor. And my doctor was like, girlfriend, I have my hand at your cervix. Like, I know that you're relaxed, you are doing all the things and you're buying into this anti-woman uh, pseudoscience garbage about how to do this right. Like what it, how you should be doing it instead of like, this is, that's just a story that you're telling yourself. Well, the environment for many women, and I think this is one thing that resonated about the essay with, with folks, but, you know, the environment turns into one more thing that you have to take care of and clean up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you get tired 
it's exhausting. And, and, you know, there's, there's no denying the fact that, you know, my, my personal experience bled into this essay. You know, I was trying to, you know, like, like you say, I was trying to make placenta quiche and work on my, (laughs) work on my master's and my PhD with a little baby. And, you know, you're saying, you know, and then you've got, you know, and, and sorry, Michael Pollan is such a lovely man. I've met him a few times. I love his book, Second Nature. I love so much of what he's done on the farm bill, but he, he really hasn't budged much on the cooking and the gender thing. And, mm. uh, you know, you, you have your heroes kind of telling you, and, and, and when Michael Pollan and I, Michael Pollan and I broke up, I'm sorry, he doesn't know this yet. He hasn't responded <laughs> to my essay, but we did break up and we broke up because I read a, a piece of, that he did in cooking light magazine. And he was talking about caramelizing onions. And he says, well, you just can't caramelize onions for any less than 30 minutes. And I'm thinking, okay. And the interviewer, you know, she's a Cook and Light magazine. She says, well, um, if you, uh, what about people that only have 20 or 30 minutes to get dinner on the table? He says, well, those same people have 30 minutes to do yoga. And don't even get me started on the gender implications with yoga, right? Um, but, but you know, he, he sort of has this thing that's like, well, you find time for what you care about. But you don't sometimes. Right. And I sort of was feeling, you know, as on one hand, an environmentalist, and on the other hand, as a feminist who's reading sort of all these, you know, feminist blogs, that there was really no overlap between the two that really made sense to me. So so that was what I was wrestling with. You know, is there a way to sort of care about the environment and, and yet accept the fact that the burden of cleanup, you know, once again, because of women's disproportionate role in unpaid labor is, is, is falling on one gender. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think about Michael Pollan a lot and I guess I've, I'm also on the verge of ghosting him. Um, but you know, specifically in terms of his comments about food, you know, so he talks about how you shouldn't eat anything that your grandmother wouldn't recognize. And, you know, let's set aside for the sec, you know, for the, for the the second that my grandmother, you know, never encountered tostones and probably wouldn't know what bubble tea was, but you know, it also makes me think of this story growing up where you know, my grandmother and my great-grandmother lived next to each other in a duplex and you know, at, at Thanksgiving, my job was to like run back and forth from one side of the duplex to the other to find out, that, you know, to give reports to my great grandmother on the status of the turkey. And this was extremely important because my great grandmother made these like really famous biscuits and the biscuits had to be timed for reasons that are unclear to me now, but made sense as a child. Like that's how cooking works or whatever. They had to be timed just right. So they had to come out of the oven at exactly the right moment so that they could be carried across the yard and up the stairs and into my grandmother's house and sat on the table. And if this timing was messed up, then they would be like, it would be ruined. Right. And every year it was this huge deal. And I had to run back and forth and back and forth. And and in retrospect, they were probably just trying to keep me out of the house so that they could get dinner on the table. Um, but you know, so I'm giving these updates and eventually, um, my great grandmother dies as great grandmothers do when I was in middle school and I was, you know, heartbroken. And I just remember crying into my mom's lap, like that. I was was so sad and Thanksgiving would never be the same. And this ritual was over and that I had to like get great Grammy's biscuit recipe because I had to kind of pick up the mantle and I, I had to kind of keep this going in the family. And my, my mom looks at me and she starts laughing and I'm like, what? Like, this is a big deal. And she's like, Jackie, those biscuits are bisquick. Like there was not 
some magical, you know, 300 year old family recipe, right? Like my great grandmother was born at the turn of the century and she used Bisquick and I'd been, and since then I like resisted this, right? Even though I knew that this, this family, you know, ritual was tied up with this boxed product. I still, every fucking Thanksgiving, sorry, you know, try to find a new biscuit recipe and, you know, smitten kitchen, this, that, and the other. And, you know, the more labor intensive, the better. And I never make a biscuit that comes out like her biscuit. And I've been, I just felt like I failed at womanhood. And meanwhile, like I should just go to the store and buy biscuit, Bisquick and make biscuits and, and just like get it, get it over with. It's just like this essentialist approach to food and to womanhood is just so bound up in our identities. And just this idea that like inventions of convenience are demonized. And so then the opposite is true. So like the more hands-on a task is, the more virtuous it is. And so like, even for myself, like I can't bring myself to buy the Bisquick because even though that's like the reality of our family ritual. Yeah, I love that. And, and, and part of it, it's so ingrained, right? You know, I I feel like, you know, having started out as sort of, you know, you're dyed in the wool earth firster. I know what it's like to have that sort of knee-jerk reaction that the natural is is better. I actually recently I, I, I cooked a meal with a friend and it was all this stuff from the garden and there were garlic scapes and there was basil and the the house smelled amazing. And I, I actually felt guilty. I was like, this is really off brand. I'm not supposed to be enjoying cooking. I felt like it was a very Michael Pollan moment. You know, there's music on. It was one of these, you know, it was just a beautiful dinner. <laughs> and then I said, oh no, I can't, I can't do this. Um, I'm just, I mean, I'm just kidding. And, 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 you know, but I, but I bring it up because, you know, I, I think that one of the things that, that Pollan doesn't do well is differentiate between when something's a hobby and when something's a job. Mm. And mm-hmm. when something's a hobby, it's, it's, it's lovely to cook, you know, when, when everything else is taken care of, where you're not stressing about getting back to the, you know, 12,000 emails in your inbox and, you know, all those kinds of things, um, you know, the kids are, you know, I don't know what they're doing, happily playing with wooden blocks in the kitchen on the floor or something. And, uh, you know, you can really sort of enjoy this practice, but when it's something that you have to do three times a day and it's sandwiched in between all the other challenges, you know, economic and logistical and kids' taste preferences, you know, I mean, I think we've all been in that situation with kids, you know, whenever we go camping, I just bring cup of noodles because I know they're going to eat them. I don't have the opportunity to, to, you know, have them try okra for the ninth time in the hopes that the 12th time they'll actually, you know, take to it and want to eat it. Um, because, you know, it, it, isn't that what they say that a kid has to be exposed to a, to a, to a food, however many times before they'll, before they'll take to it. And, you know, when you think about folks who are on different kinds of budgets and have different lives logistically, you know, these opportunities to serve these, you know, fresh home cooked whole, whole healthy meals is, is, is just a lot more challenging. And, and, and I see, you know, more and more pressure being put on these meals, you know, as time goes on to sort of, you know, counter obesity and to bring family togetherness and now, you know, also to save the planet. And I just, I wonder if it's just too much for one thing to bear, uh, I, I, you know, it sounds Jacqueline, like you have this wonderful memory with, with biscuits in your family. And somehow that happened with Bisquick. Um, and I remember in my family, we loved those Stouffer's boil in a bag mm-hmm. stir fry. Mm-hmm. And I, we had great family dinners with that. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that sometimes, you know, all these worries and concerns, you know, are being put on, on this thing 
that is never going to be able to hold it up. And, you know, there are a lot more men cooking and, and I think that's fantastic. But, but, but again, you know, when you look at the numbers, it's, it's still highly, highly skewed in, in one direction. And when they do it, it's a hobby. It's a hobby (laughs) and the kitchen's a disaster. (laughs) Like, like parenting for men is called babysitting as well. Yeah. Um, uh, so I have a really unpopular opinion that I want to bounce off both of you um, in this space. And it has to do with the farm to table movement in like restaurateurs and cuisine. I really, and I think, you know, we're, we're talking about gender here, but I think of course there are big problems around race that we could also deconstruct and talk about. And so I think this farm to table is essentially like a make America great again frame on cooking because it totally is a white fantasy around agrarian um, idealism. You know, this like, you know, um, narcissistic reframing to go back to when times were simpler and food was real food and men were real men and women were real women. Like, you know, why there's this, this moralizing around farm to table. And yet, you know, I go down to like the, the international district here in Seattle and have Szechuan for dinner. Okay. Well, that food came from a farm and those farm workers matter. And, um, and yet, and that Szechuan restaurant, they're not out there saying, uh, Oh, you know, this, this vegetable's name is Bob and he had a very nice life. And, um, you know, they're not hanging their hat on any of the moral frame that, for example, other restaurants in the Seattle area that are much more expensive and predominantly, you know, are um, targeting upper middle class white folks, you know, in those spaces, they're like, oh, yes, this carrot had a wonderful life. You know, and it, I don't think we are being very critical about some of the the frames around the the moralizing of the farm to table movement. Um, I'm just curious, you know, where you guys would land on that. It is an unpopular opinion. No, I, th- I think it's, I think that's really important. And I appreciate that you feel comfortable bringing it up with us. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I personally have a lot of problems with this idea of the local, you know, and w- why is the local necessarily better? You know, like, as you bring up, um, you know, why is the local more important than, than another place with, with other farmers and and people producing food, you know, not to mention Mm -hmm. the fact that, uh, you know, the idea of, of local is problematic. I remember I was, when I was living in Hawaii, they were having a local food festival and the organizers got into this big issue because they wanted to figure out whether or not to serve rice and rice doesn't grow in Hawaii. Oh, wow. But rice is a local food. You know, if you ever, if you ever eat anything in Hawaii, there's rice. So it says, well, you know, one group was saying, well, it's local, it's local food. They say, well, but it's not local. So it was this interesting difference between, uh, you know, biologically, ecologically local and culturally local. So anyway, they ended up, they ended up serving rice. Um, (laughs) But I, I also really resonate, Sarah, with, you know, with what you say about you know, men being men and women being women and everything being perfect. And, you know, that's something I I looked into when I was researching this paper, you know, a a lot of the idea in which the way that we romanticize, you know, farms and gardens and the house as being sort of the opposite of the economic sphere, 
And I think that's some of the reason mm-hmm. why it feels so sacrilegious to monetize, you know, cooking to say, hey, you know, if someone else were doing this, it would cost this much an hour. Because, you, you know, it's that kind of classic picture, you know, from the 50s where the man comes home and gets a drink and everything's perfect. You know, he comes out, comes back from the work world into this other world. And this is a place in which money doesn't exist and everybody's just doing this because they love it. And, you know, it really sort of denies the fact that so many small farms are run on, you know, run, run based on the work of unpaid women, historically unpaid children. You know, even now it's, you know, all these, you know, lots of interns and volunteers and all this free labor. And to sort of, you know, just, just, just romanticize it almost delegitimizes it and undervalues it. And, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant about monetizing everything, but at the same time, the degree to which we sort of make the home and the farm and the garden, everything capitalism isn't, we, we lessen the value of the very real and very, you know, challenging labor that is needed to make that sphere function. Yeah. So when Sarah, when you mentioned this the first thing I thought of was, you know, being here in Maine, we have a few foods that are really closely tied with our cultural identities. And one of them is wild blueberries. So, you know, you come to vacation land and you get your lobster and you get your blueberry pie, you take your wild blueberries back with you. And, and even that, um, just that term wild blueberries, like we have a wild blueberry industry, which sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, but the way that you know, these, these blueberries are grown as you actually go and you find a wild patch in, in the forest and you clear the trees and you might do some burning or some mowing and you kind of perpetuate, you know, the, the spread of, of these wild blueberries. So it's very, it's short, short bush blueberries, very different than the high bush that you see in places like California or Florida. And, and yet these are huge, you know, these are huge operations. Like the fact that they're, you know, wild sounds like they're kind of, you know, hand picked by, you know, small farmers, but they're, they're actually, they completely rely on this massive migrant worker operation. And that is completely invisible to, you know, people who are visiting Maine or sort of the image that we conjure of the wild blueberries. And, and, you know, we have these whole camps that have, you know, children at them um, where the migrant workers stay and it's kind of part of the rotation. Then they kind of leave here and they go to New York and they pick apples and they go on from there and the kids kind of go along from camp to camp. And uh, and actually, there are a, lar- a large portion of the blueberry, um, you know, pickers. It's, it's actually it, you you rake them, you hand rake them. So it involves a lot of backbreaking work because you're literally bending over and raking these these blueberries because they're you know delicate. Um, a lot of that's actually done by native peoples in Maine and and in, and First Nations folks in California or in Canada who come down and and do some of that work. And all of that is like completely erased or invisible from you know the image that we have of. Here I am in Maine with my blueberry, which is the whitest state in the country, and I'm eating my blueberry pie. Yeah, that's really resonates with exactly what I'm talking about because it's about erasure of the people, the the you know predominantly brown people and black people who um, are unpalatable to a white audience, and they don't doesn't serve a white audience narrative about what food is and where it comes from, um, and that erasure then erases. Like it just, it's not real. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a mirage. It's a falsehood. It's a fantasy. Just like these ideas that, that you, Jennifer, are talking about, there's this mirage of what women, womanhood is. Um, and then when people are like, well, tell us women, what is your womanhood like? And we're like, well, this is the way it is. And they're like, no, 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 
we've had enough. Like, don't actually tell us. Um, <laughs> you know, like, our our truths are like only palatable, like, you know, one third of the time. And the rest of the time, you know, it's back to being um, erased because it doesn't fit this very, um, you know, sticky narrative. Yeah. So along those lines, actually, Jen, one of the things that I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, have you gotten a lot of pushback on on your work on this? Or have, has the community, the scientific community or the, the scholarly community been pretty receptive to this idea of environmentalism's gender problem? Folks have been very receptive. I, I, I mean, I, I try not to Google myself too much. <laughs> uh, and there's a few thumbs downs, you know, on some of my YouTube videos. But in general, it's it's been wild to see how many women have resonated with this piece. And it's 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 really it's really been you know, I, I don't think I was necessarily saying anything new. I think it was something that was sort of out there and, and we were all kind of sort of, you know, struggling with on our own, feeling like I'm supposed to puree what now <laughs> on two hours of sleep? <laughs> um, so it sort of seemed like like something that, that was out there and I just sort of picked it out of the zeitgeist and put some words to it uh, with the help of my lovely, uh, my lovely editor. And, and so it's been, it's been really positive and it really made me see that this was something that a, a lot of women were, were going through and we just, we just didn't have a, a shared space to, to talk about it. I love that. I love that sometimes the, you know, the act of speaking truth in public, it changes people's ability to see the world around them clearly and also to um, understand like what's been happening to them. I, I think sometimes, I mean, that's one of the ways that I came to feminism is it was a really helpful tool for me to see how it was always, I was always in these lose, lose situations. Um, and I couldn't figure out like, well, is it me or is it everyone, everything else? And I, and because I was a perfectionist, I was pretty sure like, Oh, it must be me. I'll just have to try harder. But it's, you know, oftentimes in women's lives, it's not, it's not that you're failing. It's that everything is stacked against you. And there's no way to do the right thing because the, the person that loses is you. Um, and I think especially within, you know, one thing I think we do as environmentalists is we just say, well, you just need to care more. Mm -hmm. Right. And caring in so many situations is not the barrier. Yep. People care. Yeah. No. And this huge, you know, um, you know, we've talked a lot about sort of in on, on the internet lately about the sort of emphasis on the individual and, um, you know, it's, it's these, always these individual choices, which I think, especially if you're a woman, a mother, an environmentalist, you know, you're being hit by these, no matter what your individual choices are, there's going to be, it's not going to be enough, right? You know, you've got, you know, the mommy war is telling you that everything you do is wrong and you've, you know, you need to be putting in more effort and, and you've got, you know, your environmental choices. And, um, meanwhile, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, the really big, uh, the most impactful decisions that are made about the environment aren't happening at the individual level. They're happening at, you know, the corporate level or the the level of, the, of policy. And, you know, meanwhile, I think we're all kind of hyper-focused on our own individual choices. And especially when the game is rigged against you, you're constantly left wanting, right? You're always feeling like you're not doing enough. Yeah. It's such a classist frame too, because if, 
if you had enough money and time in the world, then you could be as green as you possibly wanted to. Mm. But, you know, I don't have the liquid cash right now to go and buy an electric car. Like I can't actually make the choices that would align with my environmental ethos because of the the barriers to entry for low income people. And it's it again, it feels it feels that lose lose frame of of um the the culture is not aware enough of these social constructs to be self-reflective. And so we're we're like chasing each other's individual actions around rather than looking squarely sizing up the the bad actors in these spaces, the economic and geopolitical interests. So I, I, I guess I, oh, go, uh, well, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, I, I think about it similarly. I think, you know, well, I'm, I'm educated, I'm white, I live in the developed world. If, if I'm struggling with this, <laughs> it doesn't get, it doesn't get a lot easier, you know, in terms of, you know, the global, the global, uh, uh, you know, power arrangement, you know, and that's, that's something I don't think I fleshed it out as well in, in my piece as I could, but, you know, these, these narratives about, you know, naturalizing women's connection with the earth and the land and their ability to really sort of speak for nature, you know, I mean, that is, that's incredibly damaging for people who are, you know, smallholder farms living in poverty. I mean, it's, it, 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 it really excuses us, you know, from, enabling folks to, you know, farm if they want to, but, you know, provide alternative means of, of, uh, of income and, and, and means of, of, uh, prosperity, uh, and development, you know? Uh, so, so I think that, I think that the, this, this narrative can be, can be extremely, extremely dangerous, especially, especially when applied to the developing world. So I, we should, we should wrap up. I feel like I could talk to you guys for hours about this topic and other topics, but, um, just just thinking in terms of like what are the ways forward like where do we where do we go from here to to gain some traction how do we how do we get the environmental movement to to be thinking more about feminism and to take feminism seriously it's a good question i mean i think you know i think uh, i think toning down the moralizing uh, toning down the naturalizing, toning down the focus on individual actions and looking more for structural solutions and you know, I think, you know, this advocacy for, you know, a broader framework that looks at women's needs as sort of coupled with environmental concerns. You know, I always, you know, one example is, you know, the Greenbelt movement, which everyone sort of knows the story of, you know, where, where, where women were, were connecting, collecting fuel wood um, in Kenya and, and they were, you know, there were issues of asthma and deforestation and, you know, it was taking a really long time. And, and so they introduced these digesters and the asthma went down and, you know, the forests were healthier, but, you know, and women had more time to pursue other sort of economic, uh, pursuits, but, you know, that was partially motivated by environmental concerns, but it was also motivated by, you know, women's empowerment and how, how they defined empowerment. So I think mm. the degree that we can look for solutions that address environment as well as, you know, whatever it is people need, even if it's not our number one issue, <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it's, it's one of those opportunities for, you know, for, for self-reflection. Um, to, to, to be able to say, you know, who, who is this group? What's really the barrier and how do we, how do we address the environment amongst a whole suite of social and economic concerns? Yeah. And I feel like to do that too, you know, one of the, the easiest things that we can do is just have women at the table more, you know, 
have those voices in the in the rooms where the decisions are being made just because so many of these conversations are not happening and you know women are still underrepresented at all levels of government and uh you know in a, in a lot of a lot of environmental ngos there are women but there are people of color and so i think just diversifying our our movements and making sure that we have everyone's voice um is you know a really important step to doing this I think that goes back to the the role of representative leadership in environmental and climate action because we you know we need when when public leaders don't reflect the people that they are serving then large segments of that um that public gets erased and systematically um marginalized I mean not to be there's obviously very clear places historical frames that this has played out in the US um, so it is about bringing people, like having people of color and women and white women um, at the table making decisions. Ultimately, those decisions, when you have a representative leadership, are fundamentally healthier and better for everyone because everyone's voices are actually, they're actually at the table contributing. So I think that's a really great kind of hopeful note to to end on. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation I, that I've been looking forward to for many weeks. Um, so I just want to thank you again, Jen, for joining us um, and also welcome to Sarah, uh, to the to the Warm Regards team. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Thanks, Jennifer. So uh, before we finish, we're, we're doing our, our new regular uh, Ask Us Anything segment where we invite you, our listeners, to ask us, the co-hosts, uh, any questions that you might have. And when I say any, I mean any, it can be, um, you know, ask us something about science. I mean, how often do you get you know, a couple of smart people who are ready and able to answer your burning scientific questions for free. Um, you know, what do you want to know more about us? Like, what do you want to know about our, you know, advocacy or policy, you know, anything. And today's question uh, is from Twitter, uh, from Logan13. And they ask, what are your recommendations for a non-traditional student who would like to pursue academic science? And I love this question um, because on some levels, I feel like a non-traditional student myself. Um, and um, yeah, so I would, I would say, you know, my answer um, would be, you know, first of all, don't assume that you are not wanted or valued in the scientific community. Because I know a lot of professors, for example, who really love working with non-traditional students. In fact, some of my colleagues here at UMaine will pretty much only take non-traditional students because those people often have lots of life experience. They know exactly what they want. They have a lot of dedication and passion. You're kind of coming to the field maybe after working, you know, in, in some industry for a long time. And, you know, you, you really know what you want. And that kind of intellectual maturity can be extremely valuable to you. Um, that passion can be super valuable to you as you come into graduate school. Um, so you, you might need to take a couple of classes in, you know, science or biology at your local community college just to establish kind of a recent educational record and kind of show that you're you know, you're serious about this, um, you know, try to get some volunteer experience if you can. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's what I would say. How about you, Sarah? What advice might you have for a non-traditional student who wants to pursue academic science? So a non-traditional student would be like uh, someone who's coming back to science after a career yeah, elsewhere? Yeah, I, I think so. That, yeah, or maybe an older, I think often they're, yeah. it's used as like a code word for like an older student or someone like that. Oh, Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with your advice. And I would say, like, don't, you know, I mean, this idea of who should be a traditional student, like, we can we explode mm. that? Um, because I think that that comes from this this assumption that there's one way of doing things and that there's the, the best way. And I, I don't think that that's true. Um, and remembering that those, that, that idea may be one of the things that's actually like standing in your way of seeing yourself, um, you know, represented and successful in science. Um, science needs all kinds of people. And um, there's this idea that, you know, great minds think alike no, 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 no. Uh, great minds think in very, very, very different ways. And so when we talk about, you know, building and enriching the scientific community, you know, lots and lots of different kind of people need to be at that table and, and absolutely including these non-traditional, quote unquote, non-traditional students. Well, good luck, Logan 13, with your, uh, presumably your uh, future academic pursuits. Uh, hopefully that was helpful. Totally. Um, so thank you so much for listening. Today's show was all about labor, the physical and emotional labor that we perform, um, you know, especially as women and scholars. And I would also mention that Warm Regards is very much a labor of love as well. And we are always looking for sponsors to help, especially for our amazing producers. Um, we all run this show completely as volunteers. We also love to hear from you, our listeners. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at Our Warm Regards. You can also email us uh, anything from ideas for future guests or show themes to feedback about how we're doing. Um, you can also email us, uh, ask us anything questions to ourwarmregards at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to the show, find us on your favorite podcast service. And honestly, if you're willing to do a little emotional labor for us, one of the nicest things that you can do for the show is to give us a rating on your favorite podcast service. So for my co-host, Sarah Myrie, and our producers, Eric Mack and Jesse Ann Baines, I implore you all to do your best to stay cool out there. And remember, we're all in this together. Thanks for listening. Thanks.